I have used a lot of commerce platforms in the past. By far, the most robust is Shopify. No matter how complex your business needs and no matter how large your business grows, Shopify can handle it. And they do handle it for brands like Rothy's, Ruggable, Allbirds, Knox, Magnolia, Brooklinen, Glossier, and Cotton, to name a few. You may already use another e-commerce platform, and you may be super unhappy with it, but you've already put a lot of work into it, and migrating to Shopify could seem impossible. But I'm here to tell you that it is quite easy. When I migrated to Shopify back in 2022, their apps and tools meant I just had to make a few clicks and everything was ported over as if by magic. Shopify also lets you design your storefront however you like, which, from personal experience, I know isn't the case for many other commerce platforms out there. All these features and all this control can result in more sales more often, so stop leaving sales on the table, switch your business to Shopify today, and discover why millions trust Shopify as their all-in-one commerce platform to build, grow, and run their businesses. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial at shopify.com forward slash practical, all lowercase. That's one month for just $1 at shopify.com forward slash practical, shopify.com forward slash practical. So today I sit down with Professor Christopher Gill. You all know who Professor Gill is, I'm sure, but if somehow this fellow is not on your radar, check the show notes. There's lots of information down there about him. But if you're too lazy to read it, or you'll get to it later, Professor Christopher Gill is a lecturer and professor at Exeter University here in England. In particular, he is the Emeritus Professor of Ancient Thought at the University of Exeter. He is also the author of a number of books. If you would like a list of those books, I could give you a few of them. The most recent is Learning to Live Naturally, Stoic Ethics and Its Modern Significance. Another is The Structured Self in Hellenistic and Roman Thought. There's also his translation of The Symposium for Penguin's Classics Collection. And there are others. You can do your own research to discover them. I'm having Professor Gill on as part of this three-part series of a discussion about free will in Stoicism the first part of which was a conversation between myself and William Stevens. Everybody seemed to really like that episode. Whether they agreed with it or not is a different story, but it seems like this NPR delivery of interviews where I kind of set up clips and then you get to hear from the person I spoke to seems to be pretty popular amongst you listeners. And so I thought I would deliver today's interview in that same sort of style really getting to the meat and potatoes of the conversations instead of having to make you sit through, you know, the parts of it that are more, let's say, transitionary or small talk. Before I start, however, I have new patrons to welcome and to thank for their support of this show and my broader work. Those new patrons are Jeff Friedrich, thanks Jeff, and Noah Borgman, Noah, your name reminds me of a pianist that I used to be a fan of, a comedic pianist. His name was Victor Borg, or the correct pronunciation might be Victor Borgia, but he was an older gentleman who played piano on stage and always fell down and made jokes. It was really quite 
something. I watched it with my grandfather, and seeing your last name, Borgman, for some reason reminded me of that. Anyway, thank you to Jeff and Noah for the new signups and for the support. It is greatly appreciated. If you are not already someone who supports my work and this podcast, you can do so for just $5 a month, and you'll get access to an ad-free version of the show, a special bit of flair in our Discord community, access to the mailbag so that you can ask questions directly of me, and I can answer them on the show, and some other perks that you can learn more about by going to stoicismpod.com forward slash members. The next thing we have to do, of course, is hear a few ads, after which we will hear the beginning of my conversation with Professor Christopher Gill. Stay with me. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I have used a lot of commerce platforms in the past. By far, the most robust is Shopify. No matter how complex your business needs and no matter how large your business grows, Shopify can handle it. And they do handle it for brands like Rothy's, Ruggable, Allbirds, Knox, Magnolia, Brooklinen, Glossier, and Cotton, to name a few. You may already use another e-commerce platform and you may be super unhappy with it, but you've already put a lot of work into it and migrating to Shopify could seem impossible. But I'm here to tell you that it is quite easy. When I migrated to Shopify back in 2022, their apps and tools meant I just had to make a few clicks and everything was ported over as if by magic. Shopify also lets you design your storefront however you like, which from personal experience I know isn't the case for many other commerce platforms out there. All these features and all this control can result in more sales more often. So stop leaving sales on the table, switch your business to Shopify today, and discover why millions trust Shopify as their all-in-one commerce platform to build, grow, and run their businesses. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial at shopify.com forward slash practical, all lowercase. That's one month for just $1 at shopify.com forward slash practical, shopify.com forward slash practical. Hey there, Prakaptan. Welcome back from the ad wasteland. Glad you made it. As mentioned at the outset, today I will be having a conversation with Professor Christopher Gill of the University of Exeter. Professor Gill has a broad knowledge of Stoicism and of ancient Greek classics and of Hellenistic philosophy in general because he has covered and taught on those things in his long career. So this conversation will be a bit broader than just a discussion about compatibilism and free will in Stoicism, but because that is the reason I reached out to Professor Gill in the first place and the reason he agreed to be on the program, I'm going to start by putting that question to him directly. Were the ancient Stoics compatibilists? Yes or no? Yes. <laughs> so that's the short answer. Yes. From Certainly from Chrysippus on, the main, the most important Stoic theorist, um, 3rd century BC, they were compatibilists. 
They may have been before, it's unclear. Roughly speaking, their view is this, that that they hold the view that of what was sometimes called universal causal determinism. Universal causal determinism. So everything has a cause and all the events that there are form a sequence of causes without gaps, okay, without without random swerves or gaps or mysteries. So there are causes for everything. And human action is part of that series of causation. But, and this is, of course, the crucial point, human beings, or at least adult human beings who are rational in stoic terms, are a special kind of cause. They're a cause that's different from the other kinds of causes. What's the difference? In what way are human beings or adult human beings different from other kind of causes? They're different because they are rational and their activities involve rationality. Whereas every other kind, every other kind of animal, say, will respond according to what the Stoics call impressions, which are thoughts or perceptions. Human adults uh, have rational impressions. They have impressions that can be formulated in language. Not that they aren't necessarily, but they can be. And in order for uh, uh, to act on a given impression, the adult person has to accept or assent, as they call it, agree to, assent to the impression. And it's that crucial fact that makes the difference between human action and, as I say, the automatic actions of dogs, as they would see it, or other animals, or different, again, of course, different further from, you know, the, the mechanical process of physical objects. As I was listening to Professor Gill's answer, something that occurred to me was something that had come up in the Discord community and in my private mailbox a few times over the past few weeks. And that was the suggestion that how could the Stoics be compatibilists when compatibilism, as we understand it today, was not formalized in Western philosophy or philosophy at all until well into the 19th century, if I have my dates right. My somewhat snarky response to this when asked by a few people, was, you know, they might have not called anybody jerk faces back in ancient Greece either, but you can be sure that there were a lot of jerk faces in ancient Greece. We don't need to have formal descriptions of things in order to attribute labels to people in the past once those things are formally described, I suppose. Just like the mad emperor Nero was a big fat jerk face, even though no one would have called him that then. But I wanted to ask Professor Gill because, of course, he knows more than I do. Here is the answer he gave when I asked whether there is any difference between the modern idea of compatibilism and the idea of compatibilism we have in our head when we ascribe it to the ancient Stoics. I can't see any fundamental difference would be between uh, a post-19th century uh, compatibilism and, and this. I mean, I know more recent philosophers, uh, Dennett, for instance, has views that are not, not that different from the Stoics in this regard. He um, has a book called Varieties of Free Will Worth Wanting. And the, the, what, 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 his account of what, what, hum, what human action is, is not... Is, pretty similar, it seems to me, in, in its fundamental fundamentals uh, from uh, to the Stoics. The terminology will be different, the psychology and so on. But the idea that there is some different feature about the way in which human beings, or as they would say it, adult human beings, function psychologically is common 
I think, to the two, Stoicism and more recent theory. I don't think there's any ancient Greek or Roman term for compatibilism, but we have evidence which, which unequivocally formulates this vision. We have texts in which this, exactly the position I've described, is, is set out, and we have debates then between the Stoics and other philosophers uh, on precisely this question. So now, of course, you, what you do have to be clear about is what the compatibilism is. So I wouldn't, for instance, I would be a bit chary about attributing to the Stoics the term free will. Now, um, because free will wasn't actually a term they used. The, the Epicureans used this and made a great play of this. Aristotle doesn't, but you know he could have done. The Stoics don't. What they are concerned with is um, what you might call autonomy, autonomy of uh, human autonomy, making their own decisions, being a substantive cause, uh, and determinism. Uh, but but free will has a rather different set of connotations in the ancient world. Free will implies indeterminism. It implies, at least in the ancient ancient context, it implies indeterminism. Now the Stoics are not. Indeterminists. They think that, that people make the decisions they make because they are the kind of people they are. So uh, in a given situation, you will act according to your, your character, given the situation. And they don't require, they don't believe that in order for there to be an autonomous decision, you have to be capable at any given moment of doing one thing and its opposite. You know, in, in a specific situation, you will perform the action which you, given your character, will make. Uh, so in that, and, and sometimes free will is taken to mean uh, a state of mind or state of being or state of character or whatever, at which, as it were, the future is open. It's completely open. Now, the Stoics don't really think that. They think that there's a kind of logic to uh, decision-making, just as there's a logic to the larger process of causation. But that, nonetheless... The causes we the actions we perform reflect the decisions we make in, in, in the psychology I've described, and they are your decisions. They're not made by the all the other causes, all the other causes. For clarity here, I asked Professor Gill whether or not, given enough computing technology, the Stoics would have said that all of the things which happen in the universe, these antecedent causes, whether if you could know those things, again, with enough computing power and knowledge, whether they would have said we could predict with certainty the decisions and choices that everyone ever would ever make, whether this was a reasonable position for myself or anyone to hold. No, it's not, because they draw a clear distinction between two kinds of things, what they call antecedent causes, preceding causes, that's, as it were, everything else in the situation, and the decision you make. That is two, these are the two factors. There's everything else, and there's the decision you make. The, 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 the total web of events is made up of a combination of all the other kind of events and decisions by human beings. This was a little sticky of an answer for me, to be honest. It seems like what the ancient Stoics are saying is something akin to, you cannot just act however you like, because your past experiences and actions have shaped you into a certain kind of shape, let's say. And it would be nigh impossible for you to act in a way 
that was not informed by your entire history. But at the same time, they seem to believe also that you make that history. As you just heard from Professor Gill, there are antecedent causes, and there are also human beings as their own independent causes. So antecedent causes have something to do with the experiences we have with human beings, but as we are our own causes, they're only part of the equation. They shape, but they do not dictate. However, once we start making our own decisions, it seems like we might dictate our future ourselves a bit, such that the character we build with every decision and action eventually gets put on a sort of character autopilot in some regards, since we have, through our choices and actions, developed that character, and that character is the thing that finds us making the choices, decisions, and actions we make and take. They don't imagine that you just your decisions are just completely arbitrary. I mean, let's take a concrete example. Okay, so one of their examples is two people find themselves in a situation where they could steal jewels. This is one of their examples. Okay, so you've got like the crown jewels. <laughs> they, they, they happen to be just parked, you know, they're just over there. So and and nobody else knows. It's a bit of a random thing, but you know, you hear the hear the crown jewels. Here are you, and you could. It would be physically possible or socially possible or whatever for you to take them. Now, one person, the dishonest person, will take them. The honest person will not. You might say, well, why? What's the difference? What, you know, why, why, why is there this difference? Well, the difference is that they are different people. They have different characters. They have different judgments. They, make, they have different values. And you might say, well, where does all that come? And you'd say, well, that is a, is a product of their past life plus the decision they're making now. You know, so, so, so there's not some sort of discontinuity um, between the past life and, and the decision you're making now. That's part of the continuum of being a living human being. And it was here then that I thought it might be useful to ask Professor Gill what he thought the definition of free will was, what his own definition of it was in particular. I think there is no single definition of free will. I mean, the words free will have been used in history in a variety of ways. They are used in a, they are used in the ancient world by the Epicureans with a certain connotation. Aristotle doesn't talk about free will, but he has a notion of what you might call indeterminism. Uh, later philosophers have an account of free will, and as I mentioned, Dennett has an account of free will, which is actually very similar to 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 his. Well. Free will. Let's say the if you if you want to say well we we if we if we want to attribute if we want to have a broad like a broad notion of free will which would include the Stoic position and a sort of Dennett type position then I think you'd say free will is independence or, or autonomy. It is the ability of of human beings to make a choice which is their choice, which is as. Epictetus says, up to them. It's up to you to make a choice. So it's a decision that has involves autonomy, 
that is, which of course that can, that's a word which can have all sorts of meanings. But here I'm just using it in a fairly simple sense of making your own decisions and they're your decisions. And they're also decisions for which you are responsible, because that's another key part of the, what the Stoics want to say, that you are responsible for what for the decisions you make. And and so you uh, you could be judged accordingly and you know you can't get out of that. Uh, as it were. You can't get out of that by saying, oh, there are all these millions of causes. It occurred to me here that since I had one of the foremost experts on stoicism sitting right in front of me during this conversation, that I might be able to test my idea that I shared in episode one, or maybe the episode before episode one of this series, where I mentioned Sam Harris and the witnessing of this phenomenon where you have this thing that happens in your brain when monitoring decision makers in MRI machines or brain scanning machines of some kind. And that this phenomenon is a way to indicate with high precision what choice the chooser will make before the chooser can honestly say that they consciously made a decision. I shared with Professor Gill that the hypothesis of viewing this phenomenon was something like we're not making our own decisions, they're being made for us. And then I shared the view that I had, which was that this phenomenon is simply what happens when a behavior or decision-making preference is habituated. And I wanted to know if the Stoics would have any issue with this sort of idea, with the idea that when we make decisions over and over again of a certain kind in a certain way, that those decisions can sort of preload or become part of our character such that, going back to something that was said earlier, we make the decisions we make because of the character we have, the character we've created for ourselves. Yes, I don't see there would be an, they would have any objection to that. Although they would insist that, that at the end of the day, this decision is not sort of predetermined by, by that. It's determined by the, by the reasons you think you have for, for taking this kind of action. But it's a bit like, you know, they have this idea of the, the passion, the passions, and there are pre, they still talk about pre-passions. And the pre, pre-emotional, pre, pre-passion is that you, before you, assent before you agree to something you form an impression you see we're forming impressions all the time uh, an impression is a very broad notion it's a bit like a cognition a modern cognition it's very very broad we're constantly experiencing impressions we're constantly experiencing cognitions they can be perceptions thoughts so we're constantly perceiving them and we perceive so we have many impressions constantly having impressions so an impression for a rash for a rational animal are the kind of things that could be articulated. So I could say, well, yes, I, I, I see that. I, I think that's the case, or I think that's a useful thing to do. So you have all these impressions, like you go back to the thief uh, or the person who was a thief or an honest person. You form an impression. When you see the crown jewels, you see them in a certain way. And that's part of what makes human beings different from rats or whatever. But then there is this key factor of assent of agreement that you have to you have to not merely form an impression but you have to assent you have to agree to it now that needn't be a conscious process by the way the stoics are not very they don't have really a notion of consciousness consciousness isn't a key term for them it's not a key term in ancient psychology so that's not what's crucial what's crucial is is the uh, impression and the assent but but assents can be they can in principle be made conscious 
Epictetus, the sort of practical stoic, he is one of his uh, recommendations is examine your impressions. You know, examine. Don't just have impressions. Examine them. But that means, of course, that a lot of the time we don't examine our impressions. You know, I, I, I think this is. You know, I think I'm in a house. I think I'm. You know, drinking water. I, you know, I, I don't examine everything. It's not some sort of massive <laughs> effort, but I can. I can examine them. I can I can see why I make a decision and whether that's a good reason. Following that answer, Professor Gill actually wanted to talk about fatalism and specifically why so many people mistakenly identify Stoics as fatalists when they are in fact not. Some people think, okay, well, Stoics, well, they're, they're determinists, so therefore they must be fatalists. And in a certain sense, they are. They believe in in, in fate. Everything, everything is part of fate. Uh, and so people, some people say, well, okay, well, it's all fate. Okay, so I just uh, we can we can give up making decisions. We don't need to make decisions. We don't need to. We're not responsible for anything. It's all fate. And this was a, a familiar criticism of the Stoic position. And the Stoics refer to this as the the lazy argument. This is the lazy argument. It's it's lazy in two senses. It's lazy because it's in, inviting a kind of moral laziness, and it's also um, it's also lazy because uh, because it's it's intellectually lazy because it's not really engaging with the Stoic position. So why should why should we you know why should you think of it? Well, there are for, there are some passages. It must be said in in the sort of all the full range of evidence we have that might lead you to think that the Stoics are fatalists. For instance, uh, there's quite a few things in, a couple of things in Epictetus. Um, the dog and cart image. Dog is being pulled along to a cart, and whether or not the dog likes to go in uh, in the direction, it will be pulled along. And, and there's a comparison between that and fate, human beings and fate. Um, and there's, a, there's a other, another passage of that kind. Now, this dog and cart image is uh, might point in that direction, and also Marcus Aurelius often talks about fate, and he says that 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 I have to accept that I'm part of fate, and and that that accepting accepting my fate, accepting the complex of events of which we're part, is something I have to do. So you might think, oh well, yes, they are, they are fatalists, just as some people have thought. I don't know much about Buddhism, that some people have thought Buddhists are fatalists. But that's not their position. And this dog and cart image, there's some debate about where it can come from. But it's not a very good, it's not a very good image for uh, what the Stoics want to say about this topic. Because actually, the cart isn't <laughs> pulling the dog along. Well, maybe if it's a dog, it, it doesn't have the, the kind of uh, decision-making capacity that human beings do. But human beings are not like dogs. Human beings are only pulled along if they want to be pulled along, if they make the kinds of decisions that, that lead them to act in a certain kind of way. And when Marcus talks about accepting fate, he's not saying, oh, everything's up to external causes. What he's saying is that, that, that we, 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 you have to accept that the decisions you make have a broader causal context. You know, there are some, and indeed there are some things that you can't decide. I mean, the, when Marcus talks about accepting fate, nearly in nearly every occasion, what he's thinking about is dying. And we have to accept we die. You know, you die, I'll, I'll die. It's, it's, you know, that's, that's a condition of human life. 
So we can make decisions and you know, decisions have limitations, but decisions are very important. And what we need to do, and this is, of course, the great Epictetus theme, we have to distinguish what is up to us and what is not up to us. There are some things that are up to us. These are the decisions we have to make. These show our character, our understanding and so on. There are other things which don't. So that's why this is how this sort of fatalism impression is formed. As I say, I don't entirely understand why we have these two problematic passages, but I think they're just a kind of shorthand, really. They're just a kind of popular shorthand for stressing the point that the Stoics do want to say, that we are, we're not just we're not just in a vacuum. We don't live in a vacuum. We don't live in a natural vacuum. We're, we're part of human nature. We're part of cosmic nature. The cosmic nature uh, has its own kind of logic. This is universal causal determinism. But nonetheless, we have, you know, we have, we have agent autonomy. In fact, going back to images, one that uh, Chrysippus was very fond of was a cylinder and a cone. He says that you can push a cylinder, and you can push a cone, but they will respond in quite a different way. Because the cylinder, of course, rolls <laughs> straight down, but the cone goes down in a quite a different way because a cone is a different kind of object. Now, this may, may make us this may make us sound a bit mechanical because it sounds as if we're just like silicon, but I mean, that that isn't the point. The point isn't that we're like we're like physical objects. We're not like physical objects. The point is that we are different, that people are different, and, they, and it's because they're different that they respond in a different way in the same situation. So when did the ancient Stoics say that our character came into being? Or rather, did they have any ideas about when we suddenly gained authorship, I guess I could say, over our character or an active hand in developing it into what it will become? Yes, they do. I mean, for them, the key moment, as it were, is the difference between being a child and being an adult. That's what makes the difference. Now, in a way, that's not, of course, a single moment. And it's quite clear that they think that it's a kind of continuum. As you, for instance, children learn languages. They don't, you know, they, they don't, they don't come into the world <laughs> speaking English. So they have to learn language. And it's kind of, it's a matter of putting things together. And they think that the, 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 the language learning process is a good, is, is, is really, if you like, the reason. You know, it's how you become reasonable. You begin to, you frame things, you give a shape to give a context structure and so on. But at a certain point, whether it's, mm, and so, you know, for some things it's seven years old, for others it's 14 years old, you are then, in some sense, rational in that you can you can speak, you can communicate, you can put sentences together, and you can be expected to uh, in, to, to, to make decisions. You won't necessarily make good decisions, but you will make decisions. Yeah, so that's the difference. Thereafter, it's 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 just a continuum. We just go on. Uh, developing, potentially developing. Ideally, we will develop in a, uh, we won't just develop this kind of what you might call functional rationalism. We'll develop a kind of virtuous rationalism. We'll develop, well, you know, we would ideally, we would develop virtue and wisdom. And so all our decisions would be completely in line with the best possible kinds of forms of virtue 
and uh, we would be living the life according to nature, which for them is you know the 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 life of a, a good human being uh, living in line with with nature, with the universe. But of course, for most of us, it's mo- it's all a much more haphazard and random process. But no, there's no point, and but well, this is a very important point, I think, for the sake. There's no point at which it stops. We can go on developing. We can go on learning till the day we die. Aristotle, I think, doesn't quite think that. I think he thinks that we, you know, become stabilized and ossified, really. But um, but no, that's why the Stoics are so keen to keep on urging people. That's why we have so much. Um, if you like, moralizing discourse by the Stoics, because they really want, and, and therapeutic discourse, they, they, they want us to go on trying to be the best kind of human being we can. Quite unexpectedly, as we approach the end of our conversation, the Stoic sage came up. And here, again, I thought I had the opportunity to test a theory that I'd had in the past by putting it in front of, again, one of the foremost authorities on Stoicism. And that idea was that the ancient Stoics didn't believe that the sage was literally capable of being achieved. Sagehood wasn't literally capable of being achieved. And the reason that I have for thinking this is that one of the things that sets philosophers apart from everyone else in the ancient world is that they don't believe in gods. And I should specify here, perhaps I only mean the ancient Greek world, but it could be more broad than that. However, here I'll say within the ancient Greek world, what separated philosophers from everyone else, every other sort of thinker, I suppose, was that they didn't believe in the gods. And if these philosophers were so wise that they didn't believe in Zeus or Hera or satyrs or fairies or, you know, pick your favorite Greek mythical character, why is it that they would believe in a phoenix? And I bring up phoenix because the ancient Stoics are quoted as having said that the Stoic sage is as rare as the phoenix. Why would they say that the Stoic sage was as rare as a thing they would have known didn't exist if they believed it was truly an achievable state? Sagehood, that is. Is this an indication that the Stoics really did only see sagehood as a ideal. It wasn't something you could ever get to, but it was something you should ever strive to get to in spite of it being unachievable in the end. I think it's, in some ways, it's difficult to give an answer to that. I think they, it is, it is like perfect. And certainly it is a, it's an ideal. It's an ideal state. Uh, by the way, there are two ideals. One is they do believe in, in their God, and they do believe so. The God is is an ideal, and we can talk a bit about what what that means in a minute. And the wise person is an ideal. Now we are not any either of those, but I think the Stoics really. It is important for Stoicism to claim that as human beings, as rational animals, we are in principle all capable of becoming a wise person. We all have the, I mean, when I say all, now, of course, they, people say, oh, well, what about people who are mentally defective or whatever, and so on. And of course, they don't mean that. They're not thinking of that. There are, they would recognize that some people might be disabled from, from that. But, you know, in general, we all, and we all, of course, here includes evil people. It includes, that's what, the, that's the point they were trying to make. You know, there's nobody who is such a moral monster that they don't have at bottom the same kind of the, the the kind of equipment that would 
in principle, enable them to become a wise person. That's and that's I think one of the most inspiring features of Stoicism. This this universality. And why do we have them? Well, we have they have what they call well, there are two things that, that we have. We have what they call preconceptions. We have built into being human is the ability to form a notion of good or a notion of virtue. So they think that we are all capable of, of having of forming some kind of fundamental concepts, moral concepts of that kind. The other thing that they think we have is certain uh, basic motives, and we have there are two basic motives. One is the is the motive, the basic motive to care for yourself, uh, to to preserve yourself, to preserve your life, and then if that develops, to become the best kind of person you can. Um, and the other basic instinct that they think is equally equally uh, fundamental is the the instinct to care for others to care for others. And a most obvious example of this is parental love, which is, a, you know, they saw it as a universal thing. So everyone has these things, the preconceptions, the basic concepts. What they don't do is develop them. And by the way, you ask what's in my book. There's a lot in my book about exactly these things, the basic, you know, these primary uh, basic uh, in the, the, the chapter on appropriation, oikosis. There's a lot about that. So we we all we have, all have these things, and we can all develop these things. And development matters. It matters. It all of this matters. Aiming at the sage, aiming at the sage, matters a lot. It matters that we are choosing the sage as our goal, rather than uh, Vladimir Putin. Or you can think of all sorts of examples. No, don't aim at these. Aim at the wise person. That's a much better goal. We all have goals. We all have some kind of ideal, inner ideal. Let's make it the goal. So it matters that we have that goal, but also it matters that in the Stoic view, we have the natural psychological uh, capacity to, to develop and to go on developing till our dying day. And of course, no conversation with any leading Stoic thinker or writer is complete without a conversation about the Stoic God. And so here I threw some ideas at Chris that I have and things I've heard from others. In particular, I've heard indirectly from Aldo Danucci that the ancient Stoics considered the planets to be gods, and that the reason for this is because planets do what they were made to do, and I use the term made very loosely here, they do that thing so perfectly and flawlessly that they are the planet version of a sage, which is, in ancient Stoicism, it seems, a god. And so ideas like this and others, I really just wanted to hear Professor Gill talk about the Stoic god from his perspective. And we'll drop in a little bit awkwardly to that answer, but I think you'll still get something out of it. Yeah, God is certainly an an ideal form of form of action, if you like. And certainly they do want to say that the, the, the planet is a god. I mean, the the main thing they want to say about the God is that God is the universal active cause. We talked about causes earlier. Well, every if you, if, if you say, well, what is well, what's what causes everything? And it's God. So God is an inner source of animation, life, energy, force within everything. So it's a very, it's a very, you know, it's a very broad uh, uh, concept. So it's in everything. So God, Zeus, and they, they can also sometimes say, well, that's a fire. That's kind of fire. That's kind of energy. That's pneuma. It's breath. 
it's also God and it's in everything. So everything is explained. Now, you might say, well, that explains nothing. It explains everything. And there is a danger to that. <laughs> There's a danger to that. So, yes, so the planet can be God. But then, of course, God is also in everything. And then they say, want to say, well, in different ways. God is in everything in different ways. And we have this kind of spectrum of ways in which God is in everything. So just to, to spell that out a bit more, um, the glass how, what this this is held together by what they call hexis structure. There's structure. Uh, your dog is an animal, and it's held together. Its kind of key factor, which holds it together, is psuche. It has a kind of you know, it's got a, a life. It's got life to it. Plants have life too. Human beings have all those things. They've got structure, bones. They've got a physical structure, and they've got uh, uh, animation, life. And adult human beings also have rationality. And God, because God is in everything, God has all those qualities um, to the highest level, including rationality. So um, it's a kind of universalism. It's sometimes, you know, pantheism, panentheism, it's sometimes called it. It's, it's, it's God in his everything, but God is in panentheism. It's in everything. Um, and so it's in the planets. Yeah. And it's also because they believe that nature is itself in its totality is the best thing that there is, as it were. The total, the total of everything is the best thing that there is. For instance, God has, as this is, of course, the traditional view, God is, is immortal. Zeus is immortal. We're not, you know, we have, a, we have a temporary lifespan. Everything, this glass has a temporary lifespan. So everything else is temporary. And it has sort of internal defects which which make it temporary. I mean, we go, you know, our body bits of our body, you know, they're not so great. They fall apart. So, so in the, so yes, it is an ideal, but it's also as it were everything. It's the life force within everything. Chris's latest book, Learning to Live Naturally: Stoic Ethics and Its Modern Significance, came out in December of last year. It retails on Amazon for £98, which is over $100 US. But if you can believe it or not, as I'm looking at it on Amazon, there are just three copies remaining. And so you had better hurry up and order it before Christmas if you want it. And I think a book at that price, having only a few copies left, indicates that it must be of pretty high value for people to overcome that price tag. And as I have a copy myself and have begun reading it recently, I tend to agree with my own synopsis of the pricing and the availability. So if you've got a spare 98 pounds lying around, I think this is going to be a worthwhile investment for your stoic journey. And of course, I wanted to give Professor Gill the last word here by asking him to describe exactly what the book is about so that all of you listening would be able to determine whether or not it was a book you think you would be interested in purchasing. That's always a nice thing to do for people like Professor Gill, who absolutely don't have to give me their time, but choose to anyway when I ask. So here's what Professor Gill has to say about his own book. There are three parts to the book. One is which I talk about the absolutely core ideas about, about stoic ethics, about virtue, about happiness, about nature, and about God and human beings, and how they relate. So that's the first part of the book. The second part of the book is a book, a book about development. It's about learning, learning to live the life according to nature. In the first part of the book, I explain what they mean by the life according to nature. 
how it's an ideal for us. The second part of the book, I talk about learning to live naturally. I mean, it seems like a paradox, doesn't it? If it's natural, we ought to do it you know, automatically. But no, we have to learn how to live naturally. We learn by uh, by education, by um, you know, by, by therapy and whatever. So learning is a very important notion for stoicism. Progress, making progress. And we're all learning. We're all learning. We're all working towards sagehood. Uh, so learning is the second part of the book. And there's a lot about the, the theory of uh, oikosis appropriation. The third part of the book is about the relationship, about what stoicism can contribute, like ethics can contribute to uh, contemporary debates. And here I talk about ethical debates, I talk about modern virtue ethics, modern theories of happiness, and I talk about uh, guidance, ethical guidance, and what stoicism can contribute, and life guidance I talk about. And I also talk about environmental, environmentalism, and that stoicism can contribute in its own way to giving us a sense of what nature is and what it could be and how we can repair, can and should do everything in our power to repair nature and and work to uh, give a priority, give priority to uh, environmental action over other forms of forms of activity and forms of priority because of, of the situation we brought about because of the global warming and climate change that we brought about we human beings so these are the three parts of the book core ethical ideas progress and learning and how stoicism can contribute to the world in which we live and our, our, our debates and thoughts and ideals and that is it I hope that you have enjoyed my conversation with Chris Gill. The next guest on this podcast in this series is not yet scheduled, and they may not commit in the end. However, because I do want to tease you a bit without promising you that it will actually happen, I have been in direct contact with A.A. Long about this topic, and both William Stevens and Christopher Gill seem to think that he would share my view and theirs on Stoic determinism. Now, we will not know if that's true until the man himself says that it is. And if it's not true, we'll get a real education from who I believe is, without taking anything away from any other guests that I've had on this show, the premier name in Stoicism in the academic world. He's interested in coming on the show, but I don't have a firm answer yet. My hope is that we'll have that conversation towards the beginning of this upcoming year, and I'm looking forward to it. Until then, however, I want to thank you for listening, and no outro music today, just a cold close. I hope you have a wonderful weekend, and if you're already celebrating the holidays, I don't even know what the dates of holidays are anymore, but I know there are a lot going on in December. Happy holidays to you, and I hope you take this time to enjoy your family, your friends, and yourself. Thanks again for listening. Take care.